The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IANS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. If you've been following the past few shows, you may have spotted a theme emerging that I pointed to some four shows back, uh, namely the idea that NDEs are not only windows into heaven, but mirrors to reflect the meaning of what we call reality here on Earth. At that time, I spoke about time as a dimension created like a laboratory tool for us to study uh, who, what, and where we are. And then the next show, I spent talking with my wife, Charlene, about the theology of her favorite film trilogy, The Matrix Movies. As you'll probably recall, The Matrix uh, picked up where Terminator left off. The machines, AI, artificial intelligence, have won the war and use human bodies as energizer bunnies tapping into our collective consciousness while they project a fake reality based on life in 20th century America into our heads. It's a virtual reality life called the Matrix that has no bearing on the real state of being. On last week's show, Raymond Moody, the father of 20th century near-death experience studies, speculated on the fact that experiencers almost always state that language is inadequate to describe the near-death experience. He is developing the notion that a so-called nonsense language, the sort of illogical language found in parts of Lewis Carroll's Alice books or in children's jump rope chants or in the religious practices of speaking in tongues, may be a way of training our minds to open to a larger understanding of the NDE. Meanwhile, however, artificial intelligence advances by leaps and bounds. Math has already tackled such seemingly illogical confrontations as E equals MC squared and uh, compared to quantum physics. Um, Will there be a scientific means for reaching into the spiritual dimension? And if so, uh, could it damage human empathy and love for God that Moody's language approach might better preserve? So returning uh, to discuss this all with me and more is my wife, Charlene Kent, who holds a Master of Theology Studies degree from Bangor Seminary. Charlene, welcome back to NDE Radio. Thanks. <laughs> I uh, I was going to I thought about opening this whole thing with the song "Get Me Jesus on the Line." Um, so um, in my uh, write up for this show, I said we continue the discussion f- uh, from three shows ago and four shows ago, really, on how NDEs mirror this reality. Uh, the Matrix reality is a reference to ideas from um, Yuve Noah Harari's recent book, Almost Deus and Dr. Raymond Moody's search for a nonsense language to describe NDEs from last week's show. And we're going to compare those to science's current obsession with data flows. So can we do all this in half an hour? Well, uh, we probably can because the whole thing I find very confusing. (laughs) (laughs) The the Homo Deus book I find. I I don't totally know in the end what what world he postulates. but (laughs) Well... Well, let's let's start I know, with. I just sounds you know like a, like a, one of those sci-fi things where it's all just gotten a little out of hand. But I, um, but I uh, so I don't because uh, uh, he doesn't take into account the things and, and which we didn't discuss too in the Matrix, which was stuff that you can find like in Psalm one three nine, 
which says that uh, all the days of your life have already been written in the book. And also uh, the uh, Valmiki story from the Ramayana, where um, uh, Siri, the uh, wife of Ram, is killed, uh, uh, takes, uh, commits suicide because all of the people around him, his counselors, keep making her go through trials because basically she's a woman and is unclean. And she's been carried away by a demon occasionally, that sort of thing. And they keep making her go through these horrible trials to pre- prove her purity. And finally, she's had enough. So she jumps into the Ganges, who is her mother, because these are all semi and demigods. So uh, uh, he's in despair, and he wants to kill himself, too. And Valmiki says to him, who's the writer of his story, he said, No, I'm sorry, Rama, you cannot uh, die now, because see all of the story I still have in the book. Which mm-hmm. means it's, all, again, the same idea that in in reality, there is no time. And right, and... And I don't the think stories, that... the information we're telling ourselves, you know, which is what the book uh, Homo Deus is based on. You know, it, it's sort of hard. I mean, we can't even comprehend what what that means in a way. So, you, you, go ahead and say what you're. Well, I was going to say it seems to be intrinsically timed to the notion of uh, that time is a valid dimension, which to experiencers it's not necessarily. I wanted to I wanted to start with the first line of "Get me Jesus" on the line. Okay. <laughs> it begins, operator. Give me information, which is perfect for this, for this discussion. Yeah. Information, give me long distance. Long distance, give me heaven. And then, oh, operator, information, give me Jesus on the line. Um, I had asked you the other day what you, what you thought happens when we die. And you said, or where, where we go when we die. And you said you didn't think we went anywhere at all. Why don't you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, no, what, you, what we're talking about was, a heaven is a place. Right. And um, the idea, too, like in most scriptures, I think you have uh, the people ascend somewhere, or when they die, they descend somewhere, and it's like awareness thing. But I said that just like uh, time, these are all dimensions that in in reality don't exist. The fourth, you know, multi, it's a multidimensional universe that um, that overlay this very tiny bit of it that we perceive. So um, I said that you don't. Heaven isn't anywhere. Heaven is a state of perception, or or if and like in this book, Homo Deus, he would describe it as an as a, uh, an experience. And then what we're doing is, as the narrator self, he has these two selves. The narrator self is describing to us um, the meaning of that and trying to put together what we experience as the reality that there is another sense. And we call it place or awareness that um, that we go to because it just. It, I'll tell you the um, mystics talk, uh, and when you talk, um, they usually talk about coming up and gets hitting a wall. One of I can't remember his name starts with an H. Was a mystic who talked about that in meditation or in trying to approach the approach reality. In the end, you always like bash up against the wall. And I always saw it this way as sort of force fields, Star Trek, those invisible mm-hmm. force fields. And so our perceptions eventually bounce up against walls with that, uh, with, and again, using the book Homo Deus, our current algorithms or programming don't allow us to um, explore. Or all we do is we have a sense of this. 
Now, he would say that sense of this is just a, a way of explaining stuff we already don't understand. That's what science says, and then we make up um, stories about other worlds or heavens or whatever to right. assuage well, it... our, our, you know, our curiosity, our needs, and all that sort of thing. But um, I, I, I sort of had experience. I've had experiences of it occasionally myself. It's like when our, our first Sammy died, uh, Sam, and um, our dog. When we yeah, should say. when he died, I. I really, literally, almost felt like there was a wall where he was like there, but I was hitting a wall. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and but it wasn't like a brick. The this thing felt like a brick wall, a solid wall. This was more like literally like those kind of uh, dome kind of walls where you you don't see it until you hit it, kind of thing. And I and I just sort of think it's it's that that we that all the days of our lives are already written. Um, it throws our understanding of what free will is and where we're making decisions and all this thing up in the air. And, um, and that's the wall we're at is like, uh, the, the right. definite beginning and end all of the meaning of what's going on. So anyway. Now, well, well, okay. So there's Raymond Moody trying to invent a language that can explain, uh, for those people who've crossed through that wall or looked through that wall, what they saw on the other side. And on the other hand, we have Homo Deus, who is, I guess he's basically an atheist. Oh, he is definitely an atheist. Yeah. And, and, um, who is saying that, um, uh, basically there are two, well, one of the things he says in this book is that there are two parts of our brain. One is experiential and one is narrative. And that we always go to the narrative because that defines ourselves. In other words, he said, if you were given the choice between going to Las Vegas and having some sort of amazing, overwhelming experience or going to Jamestown and learning some sort of uh, boring history from that experience, but you could narrate it and, and the experience in Las Vegas was going to vanish the moment you had it, which would you choose? People always or almost always, uh, opt for the Memory. experience that they can they can remember that they can commit to their narrative uh definition of their lives right. and and also uh, there's this uh this whole thing about the narrative that uh we go through as a life review when when uh you know we cross over to the other side that this narrative thing is very important but uh not necessarily uh uh to uh Harari the author of this Homo Deus book. Right. Well, uh, he wouldn't have any kind of crossing over to another side. Uh, oh, no, no. The, he the, would talk, talk about this as some kind of brain chemistry, an algorithm that got started when, you know, because your body's shutting down. And, yeah. Well, we've, you and I've sort of discussed this too with me when I was doing some research into how to put the near death experience into context in um, Christian theology. And you found in Catholicism and in, um, Orthodoxy, there are all these in-between places that are between where you're not alive and you're not dead kind of thing, <laughs> mm-hmm. or you're not, uh, your consciousness is different, let's just say that. And then we remember we were also talking about how in Buddhism, anything you experience is always a reflection of yourself. You can't experience anything but that what you already are yourself. So, the, again, for me, I ha- um, and since there is no time, that would mean that the near-death experiencer is already in their body again. Do you see what I'm saying? 
it's always so hard to say already and now because that's not what happens. It's that in a sense they are experiencing something that's a reflection of their consciousness. Not that it's not true and that it's not real, but that um, we don't know if it's some kind of in between or because if there is no time, they're already they're not in their near. It's, it's our the near death experience is also part of their future life. Now you say that you know when you die. You don't really go anywhere, and yet our, it may be our urge to have a narration that when people come back from a near-death experience, they often describe it as a journey down a tunnel, out into space, mm-hmm. uh, you know, into the light, uh, through across a field. Uh, there, there's travel and time implied in the description, which uh, may be part of which uh, Raymond Moody wants to overcome in his nonsense language, but I'm not. I'm not sure about that. I didn't talk to him about that. But um, uh, it, maybe, maybe we are just where we are. Well, you know, I'm, as you as you say, it's a timeless event. Right. In that book, the Homo Deus, he discussed this, and you've you and both of us, we've experienced simulators, and and in and now they have even more advanced visual reality things, uh, virtual reality things. And you put a helmet on, they can make you totally experience things right while you're sitting. And you feel like you're going down tunnels and in holes and everything. I'm not saying that, that that's what the near-death experience is. I'm just saying that it's an, exper- it's an experience that's within yourself of something without that's real, but that it doesn't have to be in another place. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's part, so the tunnel is... You are the tunnel, and you're approaching the oneness or the light, but that's already always around us. And then the question is, who is generating this virtual reality experience that you're undergoing? Is this, right. a, you know, is this a guardian angel? Is this God, or is this your own, uh, your own soul that has pre-programmed what you will see when you when you uh, die? I mean, if I understand, uh, like Rupert Sheldrake and and like or some sort of Eastern religion things that um, they don't they don't have an external kind of uh, some of them do, of course. But the idea of God, it, what they have is the interlinking um, sense of consciousness, which we would call like the spiritual or whatever. Or um, in Jung, it was the collective unconsciousness of all humanity and all this sort of thing. But it's but it's this, but it's the thing that under it's the thing that is like Confucius would say, as above, so below. As Plato said, the same thing. What's what's there's a place where things are uh, uh, what they are before they manifest here in the physical. But the phys- but the physical is only a manifestation of what is. So. There, in, there is a place of tableness. I'm sitting at a table. There is a thing of tableness, but, the, but a table exists here for me, but that's because that's the way I experience tableness. And so, so you have, so, so consciousness is the, is the word pre, pre-spoken before it manifests things. You know, let's say if we took it the creation story. So, if there's an under, if there's an, a consciousness that we're all part of, and then is then what we are is not just in our heads. We're also outside of our heads. And this is Sheldrake's thing: is that we always feel like we're experienced from an, an interior self, but in reality, we're experiencing from an outer outer being too, as well. 
a beingness. So we have this interior, we see it as an interior self, but we're really part of a universal consciousness. And um, so if using like the information guy, the homo deus, he would call like the inter- the uh, the web, right? The web is the thing that interlinks everything and is out there and eventually will be everything. That's right. his, his postulation. But pre pre his thought, and let's just always understand that people always explain the spiritual in terms of their latest technology. I just just to be clear, we used to be machines, now we're information data processing things. You know, so <laughs> yeah. that's how we look at ourselves as And before that there were there were demons and right. and and now uh and and now people talk about uh, aliens who are uh, actually manifesting technology. Well, I wish it may be explain a little about uh, Harari's book that he claims that organisms uh, are algorithms, that we are all kind of a flow of um, biologic information and um, that if we uh, that ultimately the, the goal, according to him, is to aspire to a total flow of information that information is going to transcend um, uh, Homo sapiens, and uh, we are going to, if we master it, become like supermen or gods by uh, by the uh, constantly expanding flow of information. Although it, to me, it sounds more like we're all going to become ants building an ant hill together. Right. His, his first postulation is that. A few of us become like gods and become enhanced human beings using the technology that the information systems have come up with. So like this helmet that can so clarify your mind that this, like this woman wore that she could complete tasks and with the helmet that she couldn't do without the helmet because it stilled her mind. So what he's saying is that that's one possibility, but that that would only be uh, the very wealthy or the very smart or whatever get to live in that world and then everybody else will sort of probably die out in the other world he has where um and i don't i have really have time visualizing what's left after all of this but that it, it only becomes an information system because because data gathering is and data accumulation and data sharing is the ultimate good and in the end you don't really yeah. need bodies or humans to do that that these ais will be that's where that, and he sees that world as I think almost more possible than the enhanced human world. The, if anybody wants to hear, see about the enhanced human world and the corporate takeover, they need to w- read William Gibson novels because yeah. he really goes into this and he talks about the merging of the human with the machine, um, and that's what the Matrix talks about. The, the, um, he, he does not in this book. He doesn't talk about the merging. He, uh, he says he talks about uh, advanced humans. But he never talks about the linking of the of the AI with the human intelligence. It just it starts to supersede the human intelligence. In, right. We sort in, of all flow together as a stream of stream humans, of information. And humans the, cease to be basically. Yeah. The, yeah, the vision what, I get is that is that stream of uh, numbers on the green screen coming down in the Matrix movie, which is just a, a picture of of information flowing, even though it's all a lie because it's all the Matrix. Right. You know yeah, what he, reminded me of was 2001: A Space Odyssey, when you, you you have the cubes, and when they touch the cubes, they get smarter. You know, they make the next step. You go from ape to human, then you go from human to Jupiter space. But what's on the other side of Jupiter space, and what's delivered these cubes? is just streams and streams of light. And remember, the guy who wrote that was the first 
where the was the guy who built the transistor and was worked in computers, saw the first computer scientist. So mm-hmm. one of the first. So he uh, so he saw everything as pure intelligence, and the universe was this. And when you say pure intelligence, if it's uh, you start going to this to the sense of God as consciousness, and in the end, we always end up at the same place, you know, whether mm-hmm. it's through science or through. Um, um, intuitive religious understandings that uh, it ends. You end up feeling in awe of this universe of intelligence. Uh, but but in the, in 2001, it was a race that had evolved to a place right. of pure intelligence, and they were manipulating humans to enter that world too. We don't really end up knowing who they are or what that's all about, but that's the premise of the book. The original. Harari Harari talks about our evolving as a species from worshiping God to um, Worshipping humanism, which is, he calls it a form of religion that worships humans instead of God, mm-hmm. to worshipping data or data. Dataism, uh, he calls it, and it's, um, uh, the, he call he defines it as the universe consists of data flows and the value of any phenomenon or entity is, is determined by its contribution to data processing. Um, and then he says, he goes on and says, uh, dat- dataism says that Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, a stock exchange bubble, or the flu virus are just three patterns of data flow that can be analyzed using the same basic concepts and tools. They give all scientists a common language and builds bridges over academic rifts and easily exports insights across disciplinary borders. So it's all, all information is important information. Uh, talk a little about what he says about Facebook and all of that stuff. Well, I don't know. What, what is interesting about what you just said is that it offers insights. But he never really talks about what insights you get from looking at the pure digital information of Beethoven's Ninth and the flu virus. What you do learn is that they're both complex. They're both beautiful. They're both, you know, but I don't know what, uh, what insight you get. And that's the thing is that when you break it all, everything down, I mean, it's pure reductionism, right? right. So if you get that, and, and this has been an argument with a lot of people is that science ends up being like Dawkins and stuff. They get, they get to the point where they're so reductionist that, and they end up def- turning, they end up turning their, uh, science into a religion. Just like, you know, they always accuse people of having well, you know what gets me about this thing is that people who have died and experienced uh, suddenly they have the answer. Some people have said suddenly I had the answer to every question I ever asked, uh, ever wondered about that I <laughs> that I tapped into this consciousness, the Akashic record, or the collective unconscious, or the collective conscious, or God, and 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 the answer's already there. And uh, Harari's talking about building a system that would provide all of the same information, but he doesn't – there's no suggestion of love. There's no suggestion of intelligence beyond information. Right. It's all just information. Seems like he's he's reinventing a wheel that has already been perfected. Don't you think that maybe all your an- – because people don't bring back the answers, by the way. I always know when you're listening to people that are channeling uh, phony baloney stuff is because they give you all the answers to your questions. Because in the end, I think that what you find out is that there are no questions and there are no answers. <laughs> Did you see what I'm saying? Is that mm-hmm. the questions are all just uh, things that are – that we, again, are – 
our blocked perception create here or our, or wherever we are in the life that we're in, and that when you break through the when you go through walls, the it's the reality is that there is no question. You don't. Yeah, I mean, in other words, when we die, we're not. We don't need to go up to um, Saint Peter at the gate and say, "Well, why this happened? Why that happened? Why this happened?" Why? Because it's like irrelevant at this point. Because it again, there is no time. There is no. It ha, You know, we see it as sequential and cause and effect. But those things are well. Uh, does that, like in Matrix, there is no spoon, kind of thing. Right, but if there is no spoon, that means that the spoon is a, just a projection from within us. Well, that's what well, Hinduism that's, would say, I think, or Buddhism. Yeah. But, but I'm then not, that's, but I'm not that's that, a, I'm not. The, I don't. I think that re, I think it, it, they go with this Maya, but that doesn't mean that it's not real and it's not a um, a real construct of something. It's um, it's the way that we're experiencing the whole reality. We experience it in small bits. That's what he says in the book too. And other people say you, we see our we see the world as if it's a continuous flow. That's what our brain sees it as. But they right. found that what we're doing is we're really almost more like uh, still cameras where we're taking snapshots, and there are gaps. And that left side of your brain is putting the whole thing together so that when you interpret it, it looks like a, a flowing movie. But that's not the way we perceive it. We perceive it in bits and upside down. So, <laughs> you know, that's how the information is taken in through our sensory system. And then our brain um, puts it together into the story of reality that we see. And I think that what religions uh, or and this idea is that an overlying consciousness is what gives us meaning and allows us to put together the film that we are putting together the film not alone by ourselves but as a, as an overarching consciousness of with each other with animals with trees with the universe and that's how we and then we generate a reality that gives us meaning and that or the reality that we're in and then as our perceptions change like from near death or from meditation or from I don't know mystical breakthroughs or from literally death, then when that well, then we get opened up to more of the whole con- of the reality of consciousness. And for the atheistic people, I think like Deepak Chopra, consciousness to him is the interweaving, interconnectedness of everything, and that does give meaning. And that's an evolving state in the universe. For people, for theists, that consciousness is. Um, that, you know, like Jesus said, God is not a spirit, God is spirit, that it's that consciousness, and that's the thing that gives, uh, generated everything, and is the original being, which then we can have a relationship with it, or whatever, and, and with each other, and that gives us meaning. But, see, the, the, um, this information system, like you were talking about, the, that you end up with, with just the internet, uh, run by a few technocrats, and, and, corporatist, um, in the end, uh, if all you have is the data that's shared by everything, it, are you, is it going to achieve that sense of consciousness? And he doesn't say that it does, and he doesn't think that it's necessarily important, that data and inf- information itself is important. Right. But, and, you know, you know uh, Harari says um, uh, organisms are uh, algorithms, and he says giraffes 
tomatoes and hu- human beings are just different methods for processing data. Right. Uh, this is a current scientific dogma. He says it's not just his idea, but this is what science is now accepting as true, and it's changing our world beyond recognition. But if that's true, then all if there's no differentiation and it's all just a flow of data of different kinds of different forms of data, but it's all just data, then, uh, you know, it's hard to imagine building a narration out of that that would be satisfying to well, I think humanity. He does mention shamans and, you know, people that touch the mystical in other cultures. He's trying to figure out how, how people do perceive things. But what he, isn't this the way that the people for, for centuries saw the world? prior to like the Industrial Revolution, and that we were all interconnected, we're all the same. There isn't an, in, in Native American, you uh, you find your power animal, the thing that you are tied to nature with, and that we are just different processing systems of the same information. It, just using different words to say that, you know, um, that we're all part of the same great spirit, and that the great spirit is processing through us, and that we share it all together, and that... and. I mean, I'm, I have no problem with what he's saying in that. I mean, I look at it this way, what there's the four things that make up DNA, I don't know, was it ATC or something like that. And, and those are the things then that, um, make up everything that's living. And, um, and it's all just different ways of combining them. The, well, that's, that doesn't seem to, that doesn't bother me. That, that's uh, true. Yeah, it, it just doesn't, that doesn't, um, affect, I mean, that's how, the world that we live in, that we perceive, that's how it functions. That's how our bodies come into being or whatever, or ourselves. But that doesn't mean it's the ultimate. It's only, again, a reflection of a of another prior consciousness that is manifesting as these things that then produce. Right. As, as Plato would say, there are shadows on the wall that we're observing at this point of a, of a greater reality. Mm-hmm. Hey, we're out of time, Charlene. Um, so, uh, I hope this hasn't been totally confusing and meaningless. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll go back <laughs> and listen to it later and see. I think, I think <laughs> I've successfully done the nonsense <laughs> from last week. We've invented his nonsense language. <laughs> I'll, I'll have to ask Raymond if, if this is what he meant. Yeah. Uh, if the audience would like to listen again to this or any of our past shows, go to our website at nderadio.org. And for more information about the work of IANS, Check out that website, iands.org, and tune in next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern, for more NDE Radio. This is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening.